Let us pray together. Father in heaven, on this day, Lord, we recognize your great sacrifice. Thank you that in the darkness a light does shine. Thank you that in the darkness there is hope. Thank you that in the darkness you have a greater plan. And thank you in the darkness that you do not leave us there. That, Father, on this day, that was so unexpected for so many who were there, what at first looked like total defeat ended up becoming total victory. So, Lord, as we reflect on the specifics of that day, help us, Lord, to be mindful of the great cost to you. Help us to be mindful of the gratitude that we should have in our lives for the very fact of our salvation, of our redemption, of our hope, and all that we enjoy because of it. So thank you, Lord, for that reminder today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, welcome. And uh, yeah, we're talking about the cross. And you know, there's just so much about the cross that we can talk about. It's, it's, it's such an agonizing picture when you think about it. It's such, it's such a difficult thing to conceive in our minds. That for three and a half years, as Jesus walked along the countryside and, and healed people and taught people, and demonstrated the Father's love and demonstrated His love for everybody and the compassion that He had for, for everyone. And yet to end up in... a Roman cross. The brutality of it all the unfairness of it all in light of what Jesus had brought to the world prior to that. And it's been said that, you know, the very worst of humanity and the very best of God converged on that day. That the cross in, in you know, the moments that Jesus hung there brought those heaven and earth converged in such a way that it demonstrated the ultimate battle between good and evil. So as, you know, as, as we begin this morning, I want to I kind of talk about something a little, a little different about, about that, particular, that particular day. Because there was collateral damage on that particular day in, in relationship to the disciples. What would they have witnessed you know, it, it's, it's mind-blowing to me to think that Jesus fully anticipated and was fully aware and fully expected and fully came to die on that cross. That that was part of God's, the Heavenly Father's plan all along, is for him to go there. And yet for the disciples, you know, there, there were two dramatic shocks for the disciples in that particular day. And the cross was the obvious one. The cross, the, the, the cross I, I can't imagine for the life of me, after the disciples had been so intimate with Jesus for so long, 
that they would, you know, what they would have experienced on that day, the horror of it to think that the hope that they had placed in the, in the Messiah of Jesus Christ to end up on a, on, a, on a cross in a very cruel way. That would have been a huge shock for them. But I would argue that there was a shock even prior to that, that, that it was a kind of like a double whammy for them. And I'm talking, I want to take us back to the Passover meal that Jesus celebrated with his disciples just before going to the cross. Jesus being fully aware that, that you know, in, in mere hours, he was going to be crucified. And what's striking to me is that the disciples uh, being with Jesus at least three and a half years from what we, what we know would have celebrated two Passovers with Jesus. Two Passovers that, that for all intensive purposes, we, they, they would have been just normal celebrations of the Passover meal that the Jewish people celebrated. There would have been no hint of anything different. It would have celebrated the Exodus. It would have done all of those wonderful things that, you know, the Passover does. And yet on this particular Passover, something different happens. That Jesus and his entire tone appear to change. That he takes whatever those elements are during that Passover and he transforms it and he changes it. And I would, I would argue that he challenges the expectations of the disciples in that moment. The expectations of the disciples, especially from what they have witnessed of Jesus for the, for the last three and a half years, that this is the Messiah that would promise to come, to liberate the people from the bondage of you know, whoever they were enslaved with. And at that time, it was, the, it was Rome. And it wouldn't have been you know, a fault of theirs, even though Jesus had told them many times what was going to happen to him. It wouldn't have been a fault of theirs, based on everything that they experienced, that they would have seen Jesus as this victorious kind of ruler who is going to break the bonds of the slavery of Rome, maybe initiate it. When Jesus talked about a new kingdom, maybe it looked so different to the disciples. And yet on this particular Passover, Jesus starts talking about something totally different, about suffering, about his body, about his blood, about, about the nuance of suffering. And suddenly, Whatever expectations those disciples had about the Messiah suddenly start turning on a particular passage that I would argue is back in the Old Testament in the book of Isaiah in chapter 52, 53, where it starts to hint of the Messiah doing something different or being something different. And Jesus starts to echo what this particular passage reminds us of and it's hundreds of years before Jesus even walked the earth. And the prophet Messiah, uh, the prophet Isaiah, um, was given this vision of the messianic figure. And it's dramatically different. It isn't this victorious figure. It isn't this person who is, you know, just so mighty and powerful and charismatic and all those kinds of things that we would have thought of a Messiah. In fact, um, Isaiah paints a totally different picture. And I would argue that in those moments that Jesus is with the disciples just before going to the cross, he's alluding to many of the passage, passages that Isaiah writes here. This is what Isaiah writes. My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root in dry ground. 
There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance. Nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected. A man of sorrows. Acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him. And looked the other way. He was despised. And we did not care. You know, I don't know about you, but... but when I, when I look at this depiction, this portrait, do you realize this is one of the few portraits of Jesus that we actually have in the Bible um, that talks about appearance, that talks about characteristics, you know, uh, things that you know, we don't typically get in, in the New Testament. And yet whenever we see movies or Hollywood depictions of Jesus, it's, it's this you know, attractive, charismatic you know. Uh, you know, Hollywood-type figure. But this passage implies that Jesus was anything but. That it was the power of the Spirit of God in him. And it was this dedication to the mission of God and the plan of God that was, if, if anything, attractive. You know, that Jesus came uh, with, with God's plan and purpose in mind and with God's intention in, in mind. And even though the crowds wanted to, to crown him and even though the crowds wanted to make him something more, it was all about going to the cross, completing the mission that is heaven, our Heavenly Father had given him that was of paramount, paramount importance. Okay, he, you know, he was even despised, re- rejected. There was the, the, the thought that, you know, Jesus, this, this perfect sacrifice, this perfect representation, this second person of the Trinity would, would be so, you know, rejected by the people outright. It was just too difficult to understand. And yet, in him is the gift of atonement. In him is the gift of God's greatest expression of love even though this is the experience that he had for many people. The passage goes on. I'm, I'm going to read a longer portion of Isaiah because it's so powerful. But here's what he goes on to say. Yet it was our weakness he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's path to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep is silent before the shears, he did not open his mouth. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short in midstream, but he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He had done no wrong, and he had never deceived anyone, but he was buried like a criminal and put in a rich man's grave. Now you have to understand the power of that passage. As the disciples are celebrating Passover with Jesus, the meal was initiated originally back in the book of Exodus by the 10th plague uh, in Egypt that God said that you know, he was going to kill the firstborn in, in the nation. And in order to protect 
the Israelites, God commanded the Israelites to take a lamb, one year, a perfect specimen, uh, to sacrifice that lamb and put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost, on the lintel top doorpost of their homes. And when the angel of death would, you know, pass over, you know, would, would go through the land looking for the firstborn, it would pass over the homes that had the blood on the doorposts. That that's what protected them. And it became the sacrifice that was made at that time to recognize that they were adhering to what God had said they needed for protection. And in fact, they celebrated the first Passover, kind of like dressed and ready to go because, you know, immediately afterwards, they were told that they were going to have to leave and get out of the land. That's how quickly the redemption was going to happen for all of them. Okay? So Jesus, in light of all that, took the bread of that particular Passover meal. So if you're at home right now, I want you to take the bread. I want you to, you know, pass it and and hold it before you this morning. And to remember that during that Passover meal, Jesus took the bread. And he said, this is my body broken for you. And he's saying that as a representation of the sacrifice that was typical in the Passover meal. Because the lamb never got to say that in the meal. That this is my body. That I am being sacrificed for you. And to the amazement of the disciples, Jesus spoke something very profound to them. That what they had taken for years as a, as, as a memorial, as a celebration, or as a representation of a sacrifice, Jesus was now taking that bread and saying, you know, the sacrifice is now me. That this is now my body. That I am now the one who is representing what the sheep in the Passover meal represents. I am the perfect sacrifice. I am the one whose body will be broken in order that others can be redeemed. That's what the, you know, the passage in Isaiah talks about that, that we read about the incredible uh, punishment that Jesus will experience, that, that he was physically beaten, he was physically abused, he was physically tortured, um, even prior to going to the cross, that there was this incredible abuse that happened as part of his crucifixion. And it's represented in, in the passage in Isaiah. And yet people are going, you know, people would look at him and say, oh, you know, he's suffering for like all the, all the things that he had done. All the, all the, you know, pain and punishment is his and he's deserving of it alone. But I say, but Isaiah says it's anything but. It's our sin. It's our rebellion. And he's pu- being punished so that it can waylay the punishment of God. 
So as you take that bread this morning, I want you to eat this with me together and ask God to bless this as a representation of his broken body for you. Take and eat it now. This is my body, broken for you. As Jesus took that bread, broke it, distributed it to the disciples, it didn't end there. The meal, as, as maybe some of you know, is an elaborate dinner that is, that is put out. You know, a, a, a lamb is roasted. Other elements of, of the meal represent the difficulty of the exodus and, and what it meant. Um, and it had all kinds of blessings that were attached to it. Um, but I want to read the, the last part of Isaiah's passage as we move into the next part of the communion. Isaiah writes and continues to write, but it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and to cause him grief. Yet when his life was made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. You realize Isaiah's talking about you and I, all of us who have claimed faith in Jesus Christ, that what looked like he would die with no descendants, that he would become the firstborn among many, is what the Bible tells us. And for thousands and thousands of years after that, the descendants of Jesus are us. Even here, um, online, all of us that are, that are viewing this and watching online, if you've claimed faith in Jesus Christ, it, it's a beautiful promise that was made so many years ago, prior to Jesus coming. That he will enjoy a long life and the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. When he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous. For he will bear all their sins, yours and mine. I will give him the honors of, of a victorious soldier because he exposed himself to death. He was counted among the rebels. He bore the sins of many and interceded for rebels. This, you know, this, this passage in Isaiah is known as the suffering servant passage. And it's, it's, it's one of the servant songs in, in Isaiah. And there's four of them. And this is actually the fourth one. And as Christians, we've, this is the one that we know the best and we know the most. And, and if you know anything about the four servant songs, they kind of, they kind of crescendo to this particular last one. And it's, it's a beautiful depiction of the sacrifice that, that Jesus makes. If you know anything about the Passover meal, um, there's a Seder table. And every, everybody that is sitting at the table enjoying this meal has either four cups or, or, four, or they have one cup that is poured four different times. And there's four different cups that are, that are taken as a form of blessing um, during this meal. 
And the, the Passover had four promises that were attached to the meal. Uh, actually, seven, but the, but the last three are kind of future prediction things that um, um, you know, other passages talk about. But there were four distinct promises that God made during the Exodus. Okay? Um, you know, one of them was that God was going to take them and, and make them his people and know that they are the Lord. And he was going to move them out of slavery and, and make them their own possession, that he was going to redeem them with the power of his outstretched hand. And, you know, and the last promise was that he was going to take them into a, a land that he promised and give it, give it to them as a possession. And a lot of those, you know, and many of the blessings during the Passover meal was a reflection of those passages in Exodus where God gave these four specific promises to the people. I will redeem you with my power. You know, I will bring you out of slavery and into a good land and, re- and, and make you my people. I, you know, I will take you into the promised land and I will give you that as a land of possession for, for you. And, and, and all of that was part of it. And Jesus does something, again, really amazing. Um, when the, you know, the third, the third cup of the four cups is, is known as the cup of redemption. Where God had said, you know, I will redeem you with my outstretched arm. And that passage in the Old Testament, it says, I will redeem you with my power, with the power that I possess. That God demonstrated his power of defeating all the Egyptian gods and, and the, the, whole, the whole plethora of the power of Egypt didn't stand up, you know, one iota to the power of God himself. And he redeemed his people through his power, even though Pharaoh and the Egyptians said, no way, you know, um, these people are our slaves. They belong to us. And, and God, God redeemed them. And, and, and one of the pictures, the beautiful pictures that we get of God demonstrating the power of his outstretched arms is at the, is at the parting of the Red Sea. That, that Moses demonstrated the power of God's outstretched hands when he did that. And they parted the Red Sea. And the people were able to go through the Red Sea. And, and all that happened afterwards. And Egypt stopped chasing them at that, at that particular point in time. And the people got to the other side. And the first thing they did was worship. When they got to the other side of that. It was a powerful demonstration of God's outstretched arms. To redeem his people like he said. And what's striking is the very cup that is the cup of redemption where that part of the Old Testament story is quoted. Jesus took that cup and he said, this cup is going to be dramatically changed, that redemption's going to look different, that the power of God is going to suddenly do something, you know, you are not expecting. That this cup, and I want you, I want you to take the cup, that this cup is going to represent my blood. It's going to represent the new covenant in my blood. That it's going to be my blood that's going to bring redemption to bear to the rest of the world. And just like the Old Testament, when they took the blood of the lamb and they put it over the doorpost, and, and, and it became the protection 
from the, the death angel. In many ways, that's the same thing that this cup represents through Jesus Christ. That we don't fear death. We don't fear sin anymore. That Jesus has conquered death and sin. That that, that, that demonstration of his blood being shed for us is the ultimate sacrifice. Once and for all, the book of Hebrews says. So Jesus took that cup along with his disciples and totally reshaped it to look brand new. So at home today, I want you to take the cup, drink it with me, and remember that this is the new covenant in Jesus' blood. Drink with me. Jesus laid that all out in front of the disciples. And mere hours later, he ended up on a cross. Totally reshaping the Passover. Totally reshaping the expectations of the disciples of what the Messiah was going to come and do first and foremost. And totally reshaping our understanding of sacrifice and salvation. See, in the Old Testament, salvation and sacrifice came through two different agents. Okay? Salvation came through the mighty hand of God the Father. Okay? Uh, The way uh, through the ten plagues, uh, the death angel, uh, the releasing of of the Israelites from bondage, and freeing them from, you know, their slavery in Egypt. But the sacrifice was through a lamb. The sacrifice was something totally different. That the two agents, you know, kind of were were part of the story, okay? At the Passover, before Jesus' crucifixion, salvation and sacrifice are now are one. That Jesus, you know becomes the perfect sacrifice. That Jesus becomes the ultimate sacrifice. That Jesus becomes the ultimate expression of God's deep love for us. And it's through faith in him that we have salvation from sin. That we have, you know, redemption and we have hope for our lives. That by simply placing faith in him, that it takes you know, the sinlessness of Christ that's imputed to us and, you know, the, the big theological language that we love, uh, you know, applying, you know, everything that happened on the cross into our own lives and, and the difference it makes for each and every one of us. That what was separate agents in the Old Testament, separate agents at the Exodus, is now seen in one, in the person of Jesus Christ. Yeah, the cross was a dark day. A dark moment. I would I would argue that for the disciples it was doubly dark because Jesus left them at the Passover meal wondering what what's he talking about? We celebrated this meal for centuries and it's meant this and, and we know God's mighty power. And yet Jesus changed it, Jesus reframed it, Jesus called it something different, Jesus did something to it, and now he's hanging on a Roman cross. So the expectations of a Messiah that was 
you know, a victorious king or something like that. Became a suffering servant. And as Isaiah points out, it's for my rebellion, it's for your rebellion. It's that we can be washed clean, that we can become forgiven of our sins, that we can become whole again, that we can become what God intended us to be from the very beginning. Now, you may be at home right now and you may be saying, you know, I'm, I'm not really a church person. I'm, I'm just watching this or, you know, I don't really believe all of this. And, you know, and that's, you know, or I have questions about faith. Let me, let me challenge you this morning. You may have all kinds of questions or you might wonder, you know, why does evil still exist? Why does, the, you know, all of this, why, why does God, you know, allowing something like this pandemic to continue? Like all, all kinds of stuff, right? But if there's one thing the cross teaches us, no matter what the questions, is that there is no doubt of God's love for us in the midst of any difficulty or any questions that we may have. That it kind of takes those and, and says, you know what, they, are le- they may be legitimate questions, but this is how much I love you. This is how much I care for you. This is how important you are to me. That I would bring my son into the world as a perfect sacrifice and to allow him be placed on a Roman cross, suffer horribly, die a horrible death, and yet demonstrated through all of it is God's incredible love for you. There are times in my life where, you know, I may have questions, I may have doubts, or I may wonder about place of God in my life or the place of God in the, in the affairs of the world. But when I think about the cross, suddenly those questions really take on a secondary role. There's one thing I don't doubt is God's incredible love for me and God's incredible love for you. If there's one thing that Good Friday does teach us is that God cares that God is there and God loves us immeasurably more than we can ever hope or imagine. I pray you were blessed today. I pray you were touched in some way. And for some of you, I pray you were just reminded of the incredible gift of faith that we share together. And it's an incredible promise that we have year in and year out to be together as God's people and to remember what we all share in common Jesus Christ King of Kings and Lord of Lords and may we all bow before him because of his incredible sacrifice for us thanks everyone I want you to just encourage you to join us on Easter Sunday. Love to have you part of that service because, you know, frankly, 
we do know the other side of the story. We know it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for your incredible expression of love on this particular day. And the shock it must have been for the disciples as we acknowledge that. They would have been uh, traumatized beyond description in my mind. And yet Jesus had paved the way for those disciples for the days that lay ahead. I know so much uh, fell into place for them afterwards. And yet, and yet, what they were experiencing in the moment really was hard for them to reconcile. And Lord, that is true for many people watching here today. That, that maybe they're having difficulty reconciling the love of God or the care of God or, or, you know, the sacrifice of Jesus in their life right here, right now. Lord, I pray that, you know, in some way today, you would remind them of your great love. That you would allow maybe this message to touch them in a way that they had not been touched with before. And to realize and to recognize this great sacrifice that you made one that supersedes all the other difficulties that life brings our way. Lord, thank you that you loved us enough to die in this way so that we could have new life. And we pray these things in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.